Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. This is Jay Lockenauer. This week I have with me Timothy Noonan. Mr. Noonan is a Rhodes Scholar uh, from Palos Verdes, California, currently working on his dissertation at Oxford University. But in the meantime, he's uh, pub- translated and published a collection of essays by Carl Schmidt, uh, the German legal scholar, entitled Writings on War. It uh, came out with Polity Press just this year. For those of you who don't know who Schmidt is, he's a controversial character because of his association uh, with the Nazis during the 20s and 30s. But despite the repugnance of Schmidt's political views, uh, scholars continue to be fascinated by his writings for their insights into international law, the question of war crimes, and so forth. And this is why Noonan has decided to uh, bring these works in particular to our attention. Noonan has provided excellent translations of three of Schmidt's shorter works that should be of interest uh, to listeners of this podcast, The Turn to the Discriminating Concept of War from 1937, The Gross Order of International Law, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what some of those terms mean during the interview, and finally, The International Crime of the War of Aggression. Um, all three are really thought-provoking essays, uh, provided one understands the context in which they're written, and I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. With me today is Timothy Noonan. Uh, Timothy is a Rhodes Scholar currently studying at Oxford University on his uh, DPhil. And he's written most recently a uh, – he's translated, rather, and edited a collection of writings by Carl Schmidt, the German – I guess I'll let um, Timothy tell us exactly what he is – a legal scholar uh, entitled Writings on War, and that came out with Polity Press in 2011. So welcome, Timothy. Thanks, Jay. I'm really, uh, really grateful to have this opportunity to, to be on and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to, to write about Carl Schmidt? Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in uh, Palos Verdes, California, which is essentially a peninsula that juts out into the Pacific Ocean um, in the L.A. metro area. Um, my uh, father is a lawyer. My mother is uh, sort of trained as a businesswoman and consultant. Um, but because of sort of illnesses in the family, uh, 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 didn't really work as a consultant. Ended up spending a lot of time with my brother, who's uh, who's autistic. Um, but at any rate, grew up in this household where uh, reading history was really important. Uh, my father um, was a huge fan of military history, uh, really in the traditional sense, um, as opposed to you know this more intellectual history project than I've been doing. Um, but I grew up in this house where. You know, we had all these books by people like John Erickson. My dad was always buying, although I don't think he could read these obscure works of uh, 1960s and 1970s West German military history. Um, so a certain interest in things World War II, a certain interest in European history was kind of around the household, even though um, it really wasn't until probably late in high school or even uh, early into college that I had any sense that I wanted to uh, be doing um, really historical work. Um after going to uh, high school at a place called Chadwick School, which had really excellent teachers, um, I somehow miraculously ended up getting into uh, Princeton University uh, for my undergraduate, undergraduate education. Um, and I was really fortunate there to have uh, a wide variety of professors in a number of departments who really challenged me and um, exposed me to a lot of uh, new ways of thinking about history and encouraged me to 
uh, pursue projects that interested me and take a kind of entrepreneurial approach uh, with the projects that I was up to. Um, I ended up majoring in German um, at Princeton, which was something of an odd thing to do, given that Princeton really has a wonderful history department. Um, I ended up majoring in German because I had found, uh, thanks to the outgoingness and thanks to the support of historians at Princeton, like uh, Andy Robinbach in particular, um, Stephen Kotkin, um, and others, people doing, working on modern European history, it was possible to have contact with those people. Um, and in fact, Robinbach, uh, who's a historian of uh, 20th century Germany and Austria primarily, was my thesis advisor there. Uh, I had the support of those people, but um, I also decided it would be a good thing to get uh, support or kind of a different viewpoint um, from scholars in the German department at Princeton. Um, and that was a really good decision, I think, because in the German department, you had a lot of people working on thinkers like Max Horkheimer or Theodore Adorno, uh, thinkers associated with the Frankfurt School. Um, but you also had people like, uh, at the time, Arne Vedermeyer, um, scholars working on um, not just this uh, stream of uh, critical theory in German intellectual history, but also intellectuals like Schmidt, um, who's more commonly associated with a German right. Um, so between the German department with a more theoretical approach um, and really a fantastic, maybe slightly more conventional education um, in the Princeton History Department, um, I was able to, you know, I think get a really well-rounded and interesting education uh, to complement language learning of uh, German and Russian and some Spanish uh, while I was there. Um, so the project itself uh, kind of grows out of that moment. Um, when I was a junior at Princeton, this would have been in the fall of 2006, um, Princeton had these requirements where students had to write kind of mini dissertations at certain stages in their education. Um, during your junior year, you had to write two of these things, which were called JPs or junior papers. And of course, you had to write a senior thesis. Um, and like many of my friends, I had spent uh, much of the uh, winter break, you know, after sort of struggling through or working through my first project for the junior papers, thinking of, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do for this thing? Um, you know, shoot, I have to write another 60 pages, you know, I have to come up with something. Um, but after thinking about it a bit, um, I remembered that, especially with uh, Arndt Vedemeyer, who I believe is now at Duke University, um, and also with uh, uh, Professor Robinbach there, um, I had become really interested um, in Carl Schmitt. Uh, we had read some works of Schmitt's, such as uh, Political Theology or The Crisis of Parliamentary Democracy for some of these courses, and he seemed like a really um, interesting figure, and um, you know, for reasons that we'll get into, and one that I'd like to maybe grapple with a bit. Um, further at that time, my German was, uh, you know, not I would say as good as it is now. So, um, somewhat bravely, or perhaps more accurately, somewhat foolishly, um, I thought it might be an interesting lark to for my second junior project to try to translate um, this 1937 book by Schmidt called the uh, the Turn to the Discriminating Concept of War. Um, there are a couple things speaking for it. Uh, one was simply that it had never been translated before. Um, another was that um, it had topics that interested me and seemed relevant uh, to the contemporary international situation, focused a lot on neutrality, focused a lot on um, the process about building consensus for war. This was 2006, close to Iraq, of course, so that seemed uh, interesting. And so I kind of began to get interested in Schmidt, began to work on this project, um, and over the last four years, I would say it kind of snowballed um, and grew into a much bigger project until uh, what we have now. But I can set that into, into greater context um, a bit, but that's a little bit of backstory to how I got to uh, where I am now. 
Great. Well, there's all kinds of interesting things to pick up on. I'm, yeah. I'm always I'm always eager to to uh, tout the importance of foreign language. I mean, that in some ways mirrors my entry into into German history. Was really falling in love with German first, sure. and and getting into history that way. And then obviously with the other languages that you've piled on top of there, um, you can really carve out niches for yourself to study things and to access sources that that um, other other people don't have access to. So I think it makes for a really interesting scholarly trajectory when you pick up those languages um, as you have. So you, you've referred to Schmidt. I mean, obviously, this is a lot of this conversation now is going to revolve around this this one character. Sure. Um, he's he he is a a large and you know an enormous figure in in history, but also problematic. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about why he's you know what his intellectual background was then, and 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 why why we still are interested in what he wrote. Sure. Um, well, let's yeah, let's break this down into two parts. Uh, sort of, why is he large, or why does why does Schmidt loom, loom, uh, loom so largely across um, really a lot of uh, quite diverse fields of intellectual inquiry? Um, and then two, why is he controversial, or you know, why is this why is this guy just not taken up universally as like a genius or something? Um, in terms of uh, the intellectual breadth, um, I mean, I occasionally I come back to this this. Uh, this project, and occasionally I look around and feel like I still don't know anything about Schmidt, uh, which I think testifies to his breadth. Um, but just to provide some of the basic details, uh, Schmidt was born um, in 1888 in a town called Plettenberg, uh, which is in the Rhineland in western Germany, um, to a Catholic family. Uh, Rhineland is a Catholic uh, region, and began his career by pursuing, you know, I guess what you could call a conventional training as a lawyer um, in Germany, and he uh, did that, and by the um, years of the First World War and so on, uh, when he was still quite young, he had established himself as you know an interesting uh, legal scholar um, in uh, in what was I guess the German Empire and then the Weimar Republic. Um, a couple of things we have to say here: one is that um, even though he was trained as a legal scholar, um, he was really coming from an educational world that was much broader. I, I think you have to say than the training that a lot of American lawyers received today, or uh, probably a lot of uh, British or European lawyers, um, in the sense that this is a man who was uh, very widely read in terms of all major European languages, um, French, Spanish, German, English, etc., uh, deeply steeped in a classical tradition, um, and was um, able to communicate um, much more in a much more cosmopolitan fashion um, with sociologists and with anthropologists, although they probably wouldn't have used those terms at the time. Um, in a very, very dynamic um, German intellectual scene um, that was partly centered around the universities but was also based elsewhere. So trained as a legal scholar, but I think it might be more helpful to think of him as someone who's engaging in a, a sustained project of political science, law, sociology, um, politics, religion, um, etc. Um, and so Schmidt, uh, as he matures as a scholar and matures as a writer, um, even though he's based out of le uh, legal studies and law departments, he's going to write um, a lot of books that span a wide range of subjects. Uh, there's a book called uh, On Dictatorship, uh, which has been recently translated, um, a book called Political Theology, a book called The Concept of the Political. And while, uh, well, really to, to give a full treatment of, of these works, it would require a much longer podcast um, or a much longer conversation. Um, I think what you can say about uh, Schmidt's works here is that there's a deep interest in uh, what is the nature of sovereignty. In other words, uh, we live in these things called um, parliamentary democracies, or we live in these things called constitutional monarchies. But how do we really know who's making the ultimate decision? Um, also an interest in the uh, religious precedence or the theological precedence uh, to these contemporary political systems we live in, in the sense of saying, 
well, we live in this world where a president can declare something called a state of emergency. Um, how might that uh, concept of a state of emergency institutionalized in a political order, how might that concept have emerged from a Judeo-Christian understanding of a miracle in theology, um, in a sense of a miracle in theology as a time when the normal rules of the natural world cease existing, God can intercede and restore a situation of order. Um, so an interest in how all these very diverse realms, at least in the contemporary under American understanding, um, interact with one another in a way that um, I think is, you know, really creative and, and quite interesting. So that, in sort of a very crude version, takes us up to around uh, 1933, which is, of course, the year that uh, Hitler and the Nazis uh, begin their seizure of power um, and the establishment of the Nazi dictatorship. Um, the reason I think you have to say why Schmidt is controversial or why people don't just necessarily take him up as this dynamic, interesting thinker um, is that throughout the 1930s, he takes a number of very problematic stands um, with Nazi leadership. Um, in 1934, after Hitler in the so-called Night of the Long Knives um, orders the uh, assassination, essentially, of the, uh, the SA, the uh, sort of, not quite the secret police, but the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, uh, Schmidt writes a long memo giving the intellectual justification of why Hitler was not only um, allowed to do this uh, in his role as a leader of the German people, but um, this was a good thing and this was a necessary thing per for preserving some I don't want to use the term rule of law, but some system of order. Um, later in the 1930s, he authors a number of um, very crude and uh, really, you have to say, uh, repulsive um, and kind of unforgivable almost articles um, talking about how Jews should be, um, if not removed, then uh, really encouraged to leave from the German legal profession and that anytime a Jewish legal scholar writes a, a piece, there should be an asterisk that uh, the nature of Jewish worldviews makes it impossible for them to even practice law in a distinctly German sense, and so on and so forth. Um, now, it's important to say at the same time that he's engaging with very real problems at the same in, of international law, which we'll get into, at the same time that he's participating in this anti-Semitic discourse. And, of course, there's a lot of debate on the extent to which this was an opportunist play by Schmidt versus, um, uh, uh, versus uh, something that reflected uh, his deeper beliefs. Um, but that's kind of an overview, I think, of why Schmidt is taken as interesting, but why he's not taken as, um, you know, the best or, you know, really, you know, uncontroversially so. So he fits into this tradition that um, people associate with Martin Heidegger or I get more distantly, I suppose, with Nietzsche, people who who have these ideas, in the case of Nietzsche, or are actively associated with the Nazi regime and, and that colors the subsequent reception of, of their ideas. Yes, and I think um, perhaps uh, in distinction, uh, I, I think that's definitely a fair summary. I think the the one difference with between Schmidt and Heidegger and Nietzsche um, is unlike the other two, whereas Nietzsche was essentially a professor and a philologist and Heidegger um, a philosopher but also a rector of a university, uh, Schmidt took up a uh, you know, was you know, his his main uh, area of competence was a, I think you have to say, more directly connected um, with politics and with the Nazi state uh, than in the case of Heidegger or Nietzsche. Um, but also Schmidt was um, uh, really involved in government. He was uh, appointed to this position called the Preussische Staatsrat, the, the Prussian state counselor, um, and occupied the position of the president of uh, kind of a union of national socialist jur jurists. So right. here's a man who was, um, you know, certainly an intellectual, I think, like, uh, like Nietzsche and Heidegger, but at the same time was... Uh, um, much more, I'm not sure if you can say complicit, but uh, much more deeply tied with uh, the, not, the structures of the Nazi state and the 
uh, kind of intellectual para organizations that played into that. But yes, certainly part of the same problem that I, I think interests a lot of intellectual historians. And that, I mean, was you don't make it clear in your introduction, but the um, this legal organization that he belonged to was this the, uh, the the same one that Hans Frank ran for a while? The what is it? The Bund Nationalsozialistischer Deutsche Juristen, the that the lawyers organization, or you know, off the top of my head, I, I'm, I'm not certain. The name of it was the Vereinigung Nationalsozialistischer Juristen. There was, I believe, I mean, as I understand it, there was a there was a somewhat antagonistic relationship between um, Frank and and uh, and Schmidt. Schmidt, I think, partly because of his uh, Catholic background, and because, well, I think he was he was seen as too Catholic, a little too intellectual, not uh, not an, not enough of a sort of party man, not uh, not enough interested in problems of uh, of administration, um, and after all, uh, you know, really one of the most prominent professors in the country. Um, I think there was a certain distance between Frank um, and Schmidt uh, throughout this throughout this period, but I'm not sure about the uh, the multiplicity of sort of legal organizations. Yeah, right. And they eventually, it all kinds of, kind of runs together. But and um, Frank being an old fighter, obviously, and Schmidt, someone who joins in 1933, there would be those those kinds of tensions. Yes. Yes. And the other interesting thing about Schmidt is that he he lives for such a long time. He dies in sure. 1987. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, 85. But uh, 85. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so kind of like Junger, Junger in that sense. So you know, also someone who is not as directly uh, implicated, but sort of tarnished with that same brush of proto-Nazi who who lives to be a hundred. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, so, you know, say what you will about these uh, uh, these sort of these uh, you know these these Nazi intellectuals, but uh, you know, they, they appear to live for a long time. So they, I mean, maybe they're doing something right. I don't know, but. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's the other. I think that's a thing that also remains very fascinating about Schmidt is, you know, here you have this man whose whose life dates again from 1888 to 1985 um, span a, especially for Germany, right, like a, a huge range of um, events: uh, collapse in 1914, um, chaos in the 1920s, um, Nazi experience, of course. Uh, then uh, goes on to that uh, to write a um, number of, you know, kind of amazing and really interesting books. One called The Nomos of the Earth. Um, translated by G.L. Ullman um, a couple of years ago, which is kind of an expansion of the gross realm uh, talk that we'll discuss a bit later. Um, goes on to write a really interesting book called Theory of the Partisan um, in 1962, which is, I think, this very interesting proto-discussion of the role of terrorism um, in the post-colonial or post-1945 world. So I think that's another interesting thing about Schmidt is um, perhaps, um, you know, again, maybe in distinction from uh, Heidegger and, and, and Nietzsche, although less so for Heidegger, um, Schmidt, just by virtue of the fact that he's alive for so long and writing for so long, um, he, you know, he still, I think, can speak to us in a way that I'm not, I, I'm not sure if Heidegger or Nietzsche speaks to, well, certainly our policy concerns today, I think you have to say, but um, even, even in a more general sense, I think Schmidt remains, um, he really, I, I think, was able to find a lot of the dominant motifs and, and problems of of global affairs that were emerging in the 20th century and, and kind of hit on them at the right time. Um, in addition to, you know, being in touch with uh, debates in Catholic theology and post-war Germany with political theology too. Um, so again, this, I think you have this very appealing, but also somewhat disturbing because of the Nazi link um, interest of Schmitz in a huge range of fields um, across a very long um, span of time. Um, so uh, really an inter- interesting intellectual look at um, as a scholar because of those reasons. So there are, I, I probably should have gotten to this earlier, given the uh, the audience for this podcast. But 
you know, for for military history and even as you as you've kind of alluded to there for contemporary military affairs, there's a lot to be drawn from Schmidt. Again, if you can sort of hold your nose and and, and forget about some of the other things yeah. that are associated with him. And the, and the first is this the piece that you chose to translate, I, I guess, as an undergraduate and then and then refine for this the this concept of the disc, the discriminating concept of war, a piece that was written in in 1937 and in some ways can be seen as a as a a, a simple pro-Nazi kind of attack on the League of Nations, but is really uh, an interesting critique of the world system that develops in the in the course of the 20th century with the League and then later the United Nations. So why don't you why don't you use that as a as an opportunity to, to expand on on that piece? Sure. So um, right, this is a piece that Schmidt uh, develops for um, essentially a legal conference in Munich, um, and I think the spring of 1937. Um, and as you say, you know, superficially, you look at this thing, and he's basically trashing the League of Nations and saying, "Look, this this organization doesn't make any sense. It's you know inconsistent, um, and so on and so forth." And your your initial response might be just to say, "Oh, well, you know, this meeting of Nazi jurists, they dislike the League of Nations. Okay, you know, what's the big deal? This is like just not interesting." Um, but when you look closer at this, what is Schmidt trying to do? Um, there's a number of things. One is this is still a moment when. You know, 1937, um, this is pre-attack on, pre on, um, on Czechoslovakia. This is pre-Poland, of course. This is still a moment where it's not 100% clear, um, and certainly not within the German intellectual community, or if you can sort of stomach the phrase, the Nazi intellectual community, um, among these, these university professors, law professors, and so on in Germany, that there will have to be some way for Germany to fit into an existing international order or the League of Nations will somehow have to adapt. Um, you know, these, these people are not just assuming that we're just going to conquer everything and destroy everything. Um, that's a position that's certainly represented by, you know, Hitler and Himmler, of, which is obviously of crucial importance um, as events go on. But when you look at this piece, you remember that um, even though a lot of these people, you know, were evil in the sense that um, they had done very bad things or had supported uh, really reprehensible policies towards Jewish academics, um, that there was some variety of discourse um, in the country at that time. But so what's the argument here? Um, it's a little bit complicated. Schmidt kind of starts off by making the observation that um, increasingly since World War I um, in Europe and in the international order, um, you don't really define uh, when wars end, you don't really have a winner and a loser um, so much. Instead, more often than not, uh, people are called criminals. They're called people who have broken international law, um, these, these rebels. Um, and there's a kind of moral tone that is added to military conflicts. Um, so the perfect example of this is um, the end of the First World War, when in the Treaty of Versailles, it's not just stated that uh, the Kaiser should, uh, uh, should pay some money or there'll be a readjustment of the territorial guidelines, but rather Germany has to sign these war guilt clauses, uh, basically admitting to some kind of criminal guilt. Um, again, there's this emphasis on criminality of war, um, that it's evil in some sense, rather than just something that kind of happens or, or a process that has to be regulated by law between states. Um, and that's sort of worthy, worthy of notice. Um, now, that's an observation that many people had made before Schmidt and that Schmidt, of course, would repeat throughout much of his career. Um, so what's unique about this piece, the 1937 lecture, is Schmidt takes that observation and then he starts talking about, well, okay, what does this turn to a more criminal or moral understanding of war, and especially the resolution of war, um, say about uh, the way that we will regulate uh, conflicts in the future. 
Um, and he gives the example of uh, the war in Abyssinia, uh, say, or in many other conflicts uh, throughout the 1930s, where, you know, outside powers would intervene. Um, there would be some question about whether this was evil. Um, other powers would or would not intervene, and so on and so forth. And he's particularly interested in the concept of neutrality here. And so an example might be, um, let's say, uh, let's take this Libya thing as an example, this Li the Libyan intervention going on today. You have a situation where um, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and many other powers um, have essentially condemned Muammar Gaddafi as, as this evil person and you know someone who has to be uh, removed from power, um, and so on and so forth. They're, they're not just saying we're at war with this person, but um, in effect, our goal is to remove this person from power. It's a criminal regime, um, and so on and so forth. Obviously, the war in Iraq was very similar to this, and so on and so forth. And I should just say that I'm kind of providing this as an example. I don't intend this as kind of personal political commentary. Um, but anyway, you have these events where, you know, Western powers intervene, which Schmidt says is, okay, well, let's say at the same time I have other powers, um, and especially other powers that are part of the same collective security organization as that first group. So in the Libya case, you might talk about like Brazil, Germany, um, India, China, Russia. In other words, all the powers that abstained uh, from the UN Security Council uh, resolution. These are countries that say, well, you know, we're uncomfortable about making a, a decision about, you know, whether we want to support this thing. Maybe I'm uncomfortable about saying that this man is a complete criminal. Maybe it'll affect my, my image elsewhere. Um, and what Schmidt is interested in is how there becomes this conflict between this universalist claim to justice that um, powers, especially France, Britain, and, and the United States had represented throughout the 20th century, um, and the needs of maintaining a collective security organization like the League of Nations or, or the United Nations with that universalist claim. So in other words, a concrete problem might arise, like in the Libya example, say if uh, China is sending, I don't know, trade boats to go to Tripoli or something, um, and they're just trying to conduct normal trade um, with Libya. But the United States has said, oh, you know, you know, this is an evil man. We're having, you know, wartime operations. We have to blockade um, Libya's ports. What happens in the circumstance when you have outside powers that are neutral towards the Libya or the Saddam Hussein um, or the Abyssinia in the 1930s um, that are trying to maintain um, some position of neutrality? towards uh, the, uh, the so-called evil party. Um, and Schmidt views this as a problem that really hasn't been effectively solved um, by the League of Nations. Um, he worries about the fact that neutrality um, may effectively be disappearing and that with the rise of more universalist concepts of justice, especially after the Treaty of Versailles, that it becomes very difficult for a concept of neutrality to exist and that you reach these situations where it's difficult to have a ordered or perhaps civilized resolution of these conflicts. Instead, Everybody has their own universalist claim to justice. You run the risk of getting in these tricky situations when there's a Chinese boat in the Tripoli Harbor and you, you bomb it or blockade it. Um, you know, look at the uh, the bombing of the Chinese embassy in, in Serbia um, in the, um, I believe, Serbia in the 1990s, for an example, of kind of how this played out. Um, and he views this as a problem, not necessarily one that's completely fatal to the to the League of Nations or certainly to any project of, um, of international understanding and uh, and a smart global community. Um, but kind of looking at that tension and exploring it. And I think as hopefully the analysis I provided the Libby example um, shows, this is uh, a, tension, a certain tension um, with creating an a international organization. That's it's great. I mean, I've been working on uh, the, the concept of demilitarization since 1945 and, yes. and reading uh, Martin Van Krevel's uh, Transformation of War, which was written back in 1991. And, and one of the things I'm finding is that these, these kinds of books tend to be very much um, – 
products of their time. In other words, if, if there's a, you know, an arms race, then everyone's very pessimistic and the world's going to end. But if the Soviet Union has fallen, then war is being transformed and changing. But one of the things that Van Krebel points out is that he, he suggests that we might be returning in some ways you know, in the 90s to a, uh, an almost medieval sense of just war, war as, a, as an exercise in, in, in justice or, mm-hmm. or criminality. And, and in some ways, um, Schmidt is pointing ahead to that, to that very same problem that, that we're, um, we run the risk of it. As you say in your, in your introduction to that piece, that uh, making a war of extermination even more likely by by taking up these concepts of, of right and wrong in such absolutist terms. Yeah, and I think it, one thing that Schmidt was aware of and uh, that von Krebel is aware of as well, and, you know, Schmidt is not, uh, at least in that early lecture, not proposing that there's an, uh, an answer to this problem. I mean, this is just obviously a really complicated issue. Um, as he sees it, part of the problem is you have this international law that develops in a very distinctly and really exclusively uh, European climate namely in the, um, in the early modern period up until the uh, late 19th century. And then only gradually is this uh, process of international law uh, or this institution expanded uh, to the Ottoman Empire, to the colonial world. Um, and then, of course, you know, today after 1914 and especially after the, after the League of Nations, after the United Nations and the explosion of independent countries, um, you now have this, you know, just kind of by definition, this very global um, community of, of countries from, say, North, well, not North Korea, but uh, you know, Korea to uh, Liberia to the United States that are all supposed to get along in some way and find universalist norms. And, you know, Schmidt, I think, comes from this somewhat skeptical perspective that it's it may be problematic uh, to have universalist claims to justice um, in this in this climate where you want to have a global conversation and have collective security. But it's important to balance these things out. So what strikes me about that is that, you know, A, coming from, from a very much a pre kind of multicultural um, sort of era just in general, but then also as someone who's a, a supporter of the Nazi state who is going to intentionally wage a, a war of extermination um, outside the bounds of the League of Nations and, you know, affected <laughs> right. by that. You know, I mean, it, it's going to come about in completely <laughs> different ways. And yet, and yet it's still a very insightful point that he's making. Yes, and I think, um, you know, as we transition to talk about the second uh, text or the Grossraum text, um, I mean, you know, obviously I think, you know, the first thing you say is, okay, wait a second, here's this, here's this guy who's a Nazi talking about international law and how kind of everybody needs to get along and we can't, um, you know, just impose our own will on other people. You think, you know, wait a second, you know, isn't there a problem here? But uh, the, the, the solution that Schmidt attempts to impose on this puzzle um, later in 1940 and 1941 is um, – uh, kind of kind of weird, but I think uh, shows to some of the diversity of thought and may potentially be. I, I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to go out there too far, but may potentially be suggestive of um, possible different uh, directions for an international order in the future. If if you know we feel that okay, American leadership isn't enough, or or that the United Nations isn't enough, um, and and so on. But you know, this wrestling with these these problems, but doing it in a very weird, at least to a contemporary Western observer. Uh, way, given the intellectual or scene that he's in. Right. Well, so, yeah, I guess we could, we could go on from there. I'm just staring at the last sentence of his, um, of that essay where he writes, you know, worse than nothing, these, these universalist orders like the League of Nations stand in the path of a true community of nations, which is and not, not something you'd expect from a member of the Nazi party or, or to think about what that community of nations might have looked like. So right. this, it, now, w- before I read your uh, your collection here on Schmidt, uh, the Grossraum concept was the one I was probably most 
most familiar with, though I sure. didn't claim any expertise. So let's talk a little bit about the, the second essay then on the Grossraum order. Sure. So again, this is really, this is really kind of a conference paper um, similar to the first one. Um, Schmidt is invited uh, – well, I'm not sure if he's invited, but he goes to this uh, conference um, in Kiel, a city in northern Germany. Um, first, I think it's in the, like the summer of night. Well, timing is important on this one. I think it's the – let's see. I think it's the summer – it's like the spring or summer of 1940. Um, it's a conference um, sort of in honor of a professor of law at Kiel. But the real purpose of the, the proceedings is for essentially law professors, Nazi intellectuals, etc., to get together and try to come up with some concepts that might be useful um, for Nazi governance um, in Eastern Europe. Um, and just for the sake of context, uh, just a fairly basic observation, but because this is 1940, uh, we have to say a couple of things about what's going on in Eastern Europe. Um, after 1939, of course, uh, in September, uh, October, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were allied at this point, um, and they had split up, essentially, um, Eastern Europe, most notably Poland, um, into uh, really spheres of influence, um, although they wouldn't necessarily have used those terms. Um, and in fact, the, the, concept that sh- the concepts that Schmidt will use are, I think, very important to his discussion um, in this gross round book. Um, at the same time, they're also carrying out population transfers. That is to say, um, a lot of ethnic Germans, um, especially in Lithuania, but also other parts of the Soviet Union, or the, or the annex parts of the Soviet Union are being transferred, um, you know, basically forced to migrate um, to the houses uh, that used to belong to Poles and Jews. Um, in these annex parts of Eastern Europe. So you have this, uh, you know, odd period of stability in a sense, um, but also because these people can't see forward in the future at the time, a sense of, well, okay, maybe this is what the, um, the final settlement for Europe is going to look like, uh, some sort of peace between the USSR and Nazi Germany, and Germany will have this pretty big empire, but with a range of different um, governance structures from outright rule in much of the parts of annexed Poland to this weird thing called the general government, um, where there's still a lot of Jews and a lot of Poles living, to kind of domination, but really local governance in many parts of France. So you have this really complex system of governance uh, that Germany has imposed over Europe that is very different in many places. Uh, we have to say, of course, uh, not to state the obvious, that this is accompanied by forced migration and, and simply murder of uh, many Poles, Jews, and other uh, minorities, not to mention homosexuals, Sinti, Roma, etc. Um, but um, to look at this from the perspective of law professors, uh, really a complex um, issue of governance. Um, and that's what a lot of these professors think that they're doing um, at this conference. So Schmidt's um, foray or his, uh, his gambit at this conference is to offer a concept that he calls Grossraum, um, a German word that literally means great space or, or big space, um, but he'll play with. Um, and he views this concept of Grossraum as really key to defining what a Nazi governance structure for Eastern Europe and potentially uh, really Western Eurasia in the future can look like. And Schmidt goes on and on throughout the course of 1940 to 1941, updating this text, changing it um, a bit. And of course, there's this huge development, namely that Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union and takes over these territories. And he's he writes many times in the introduction forward of, you know, I can hardly keep up with the course of events. And I think eventually he recognizes you know, well, this is sort of a, a nice idea, um, but events are just proceeding so quickly, it's hard to say what our governance solution will look like uh, for these places or how our new systems of governance will even relate to institutions like the League of Nations or United States or the British Empire and so on and so forth. So that's a little bit of the background um, to uh, what Schmidt is doing here. So I mean, a couple things struck me about it. One is in... in um 
more so than the first essay, this seems more like a justification, even though he is, as he, as he um, suggests, a little bit behind the times. The idea that, well, everyone's got these, these great um, global empires, they have their, their kind of areas of hegemony, and all Germany is doing is carving its out and pointing consistently to the Monroe Doctrine. Again, as an American, that sort of um, struck me as well. So what's, how does he, what does he think about the Monroe Doctrine? Why is that important for his analysis? Sure. A, a, an interesting thing, I, I think, for Schmidt here, and I certainly could have written more on this in the, in the foreword, um, uh, scholars have written on this this before. Um, uh, Schmidt throughout is uh, very interested in this uh, concept of what he, basically space. I mean, you have to remember this whole con- this concept is what he what he calls great space. Um, and he spends a lot of time talking about. Uh, I mean, the first chapter is called, I believe, "Examples of Ungenuine or Superseded Principles of Space." And he's very interested in this idea of basically where are we going to draw borders or where are we going to draw um, the end of spheres of influence because um, that's really crucial. He thinks for um, how you create a peaceful situation. He's interested, uh, he starts off by saying that these, these, these processes that we used um, for something like the Paris Peace Treaties in, in 1919 with Versailles, where you just kind of draw a line on the border, or you say, okay, the Austro-Hungarian Empire doesn't exist anymore, I'm going to put a line here, or there's a river here even. Um, he doesn't really view that as interesting, or uh, doesn't really view that as dignified as a concept um, for how governance should be defined, how edges of empire should be defined, um, and so on and so forth. Um, that, he thinks, traces back to this sort of French uh, legal school um, that is just not really valid in his opinion. And as you suggest correctly, he, he views the American experience, and particularly the American experience of the Monroe Doctrine in the 19th century, as the, uh, as the place to look. Um, Monroe Doctrine, of course, said that there will be kind of no interference from European powers um, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so a couple things are interesting about that um, from Schmidt's point of view. One is that you have this nation, the United States, uh, that for one, of course, didn't, you know, hadn't really existed for very long, you know, a little, uh, at that point, um, hardly more than a century, uh, let's say, 18, uh, yeah, a little more than a century at that point, um, kind of coming out and saying, okay, these systems of monarchism, of absolutism that really have a long history in this, you know, Atlantic political tradition, these are just not valid anymore. We, we reject them and, you know, sorry, you know, these are kind of obsolete. Um, that's, that's sort of remarkable. What's also remarkable from Schmidt's point of view is that America under Monroe and the, and the succeeding secretaries of state and other foreign policy workers in the American political complex who developed this concept, they're not just thinking in terms of, okay, the Rhine River or, you know, the, the, uh, the Oder and Ice, uh, bordery or the, or the Volga River or something, um, you know, they, they don't have this small scale of thinking. They're basically saying, look, we, we kind of own this entire hemisphere. Um, and that's like, that's a pretty bold statement. And for him, a qualitatively different way of thinking about political order and how empire should be structured from just saying, well, okay, here's this river, here's this forest, boom, that's where I'm going to put my state. Um, and that is, that's really quite admirable for him. But the concept that he, fi- the, the reason why he finds the Monroe Doctrine and this American experience, I think, most productive um, is he's able to look at it and say, this will kind of be the model for how a German empire or a German system of governance and empire will work um, in Europe. He says, okay, whereas in the American experience, you had this state, which he calls not a state, but a Reich, sort of literally an empire, but can maybe translate it as state, empire, um, uh, and, into English. 
it has a political idea of anti-monarchism, liberty, democracy, etc. And it kind of stakes out a, a really big chunk of, of the globe, not just defined by rivers, but, you know, a globe in the sense of hemispheres for the emanation of its political idea. And that space, namely the Western Hemisphere in the American case, that this political idea of anti-monarchism, liberty, etc., streams or uh, flows into, um, that is what he calls a gross realm. A, a great space. So in, in Schroeder Schmidt's vision of what the new world order will look like, you're going to have perhaps multiple rights, uh, these empires, each of which will have a political idea um, that will then, you know, be the governing principle, let's say, for, um, uh, for a significant region of the earth. So to tie this back to what we were talking about with the 1937 text, you have a kind of universalism. I mean, Schmidt, while he may personally not approve of the American concept of, of uh, you know, mixing of peoples and assimilation, is willing to say, okay, well, that exists. That's going to be for the Western Hemisphere. But, you know, in return for this, uh, we're going to have our own principle in, the, in this Nazi state, in this Nazi Reich, and we're going to control, basically, Western Eurasia, um, and we're going to have our own gross round. That's defined by that. <laughs> that's, I'm just uh, I'm sort of rolling this over in my head because, on the one hand, it seems like um, it would run up against his objection to the notion of universalism, the, the claim that the Americans make that, that – our this kind of philosophy of freedom and democracy and so forth is is going to work for this whole hemisphere. Like when the, the, the whole concept of a univer, something that's universalist, right? How can it simply stop, even it, even at a at a gross realm level? I mean, isn't it isn't it sort of destined to expand and take over everything else? Otherwise, it's not universal. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it, I, I, Schmidt. I think kind of has to fudge this problem. There's a mm-hmm. there's a section in the text where he, uh, you know, he talks about. He basically says, "Look, it's hard for me to say how uh, what foreign policy would look like in my gross realm system." Um, saying, you, you know, he, I think he, he's keen to emphasize that even um, when there's an American empire existing over uh, uh, over the Caribbean or, or Central America, you still have these independent states um, like Nicaragua, Cuba, whatever that are kind of nominally independent and, and may still have like intellectuals within them. Um, but he, he doesn't really, I think, provide an adequate response to that question. He says, well, you're going to have relations of, you know, states to states within gross realms. You're going to have relations of states like between say Nicaragua and Poland. Uh, but you're also going to have a relationship of sort of the American gross realm to the German gross realm. He kind of fudges the question by saying, well, by really just not providing very much analysis of how this is actually going to work specifically with the problem of American universalism. Um, but essentially, the, the principle that he's offering um, as a counter to American ideals of freedom and universalism is saying, um, you know, well, look, uh, you know, peoples of Europe want to have kind of nationally distinct uh, lives. Um, and to a German uh, in the 1930s, this, you know, could have some appeal insofar as a lot of Germans were left out of the German, uh, out of the Weimar Republic in the 1920s and, and so on and so forth. But uh, obviously, this you know raises certain questions of like, okay, what about gypsies? Uh, what about Jews? Obviously, don't you know? Don't they get to have their own protection of their national tradition and so on? Um, and so, what you find here, I think, is Schmidt's attempt to answer some of the problems that he raised in the 1937 text. Um, but as you bring up, you know, totally correctly with uh, with the American universalism example, or with obviously this problem of uh, of Jews and the Holocaust. Um, there, you know, obviously, there's sort of obvious base inconsistencies in this vision. Do you know the the book by Vaius Lelevichus, the um, Warland on the Eastern Front? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. Right, so it's a it's a book that came out with Cambridge probably around 2000 or so, and Vaius was a colleague of mine at Penn in grad school, and it's a, it's a fantastic book about 
um, Ludendorff's Oberost, the um, the German military administration on the Eastern Front, mm-hmm. and his argument in a nutshell is that um, the the sort of plans and visions that the Germans have for this East European space in World War One. Um, they see it as as frustrated by the people that are there that don't fit into this uh, that aren't willing to put up with German ideas of order and so forth and so, kind of by he doesn't have the direct evidence but there's the connection there the the obvious implication is that well when they come back in the Second World War they're going to do away with the people and just work with the space and so to me that concept of Raum which of course Hitler talks about Lebensraum mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's one that floats around is is really fascinating and there's a, a section and this is on page ninety nine one hundred um, of of your text um, in Schmidt's words where he's talking about. The, the German Monroe, there is no German Monroe Doctrine, but there is this application of the spatial order in international law appropriate to the current political and historical position of the German Reich and the East European space. Yes. Right? So, and, and that he uses the term Reich to describe, describe the German side mm-hmm. and space, presumably Raum, uh, for the East Europeans. You could read that as sort of ominous, especially given that two pages later he says – Correct naming of these entities is of great significance. Words and names are never of secondary importance, right? So that's yeah. that's really fascinating to me that you know the, the that he's he's thinking even even the way he's formulating this complicated problem sets up this the the potential and and in, in as the Nazis carried it out the actuality of Germans exercising power and empire and the area that they're in just existing as space uninhabited presumably by people. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, I, I think that's a totally great comment. And I think what it highlights to me is how, um, I mean, it, you know, not, you don't want to sort of overly scholarly, take an overly scholarly approach to these things sometimes given that so many people were, um, you know, murdered and, and displaced and so on. But I think, um, part of what it captures is how there was, uh, you don't want to use the term policy debate, but how um, how many kind of different viewpoints there were, um, even within what we can maybe sometimes take to be this unitary political entity like Nazi Germany, where um, you have definitely, I think, the transference of these uh, early 20th century concepts of space, empty space, unproductive space, this idea that Slavs aren't, aren't using the space effectively, um, which becomes tied with reforms in a number of areas, agricultural administration especially. Um, but on the, I, I think with Schmidt, one thing that's interesting here, kind of in the same area, it's, I don't have a copy of the book in front of me, but probably 90, 90, 100 as well. There's Schmidt, while I think definitely playing with these terms, um, he goes into this paragraph long discussion about how, about all of these, um, treaties and these, uh, these so-called awards dating from this strange period of, uh, basically fall 39 to, uh, spring, summer 41, uh, treaties that were concluded between German and Estonia, German and Lithuania, German and Romania, Hungary and, and Austria, et cetera, et cetera. How all of these countries under Nazi administration during this time were concluding these treaties that would basically involve shipping uh, nationalities and people from one area to the other. So I, I think what that highlights is how even within Schmidt's text, there's a tension between, um, on the one hand, as I think you very correctly pointed out, this idea of unproductive space and the need to, uh, you know, kind of a, a privilege uh, that, that Germany can take in Eastern Europe with this, um, but also a sense that, you know, maybe the best thing to do would just be to move all of the uh, alien peoples, say, move all the Germans from in Hungary to back to Germany, and move all the Poles in Romania uh, back to Poland. This this tension between a uh, really extreme push towards homogeneity, but on the other hand, um, the sense of look, sorry, you, you know, you just don't have any rights to live in this place at all. I don't, I don't care if this is a uh, this is Poland, but 
um, this unproductive space will now become German. So uh, kind of a, a capturing of some of the tensions, I think, between the ways people thought about Eastern Europe and especially in this German intellectual academic uh, complex uh, during the Nazi years. And, of course, that's a tension that's implicit in, in nationalism. I, I, I talk to my students about uh, you know, 19th, 19th century na- nationalism, early, early nationalism, and, and point to um, uh, the Ode to Joy, the um, mm-hmm. what is it, uh, Schiller, right? Yes. The, the, the poem that Beethoven then makes the, the center of the Ninth Symphony where, where it talks about all men being brothers. I mean, that that's the, if you could just sort of sort them out nationally, there would be this natural harmony among people. It's a... It's an idea that seems sort of ludicrous given everything that's happened, but I think it's interesting to point out that historically that was that was not an uncommon belief. And maybe maybe Schmidt, if you wanted if you wanted to credit him with something, maybe you could credit him with um, believing along those lines. Yeah, I mean, as I was as I was looking at this text, I mean, I had, I had taken you know courses on World War II and uh, interwar European history, but uh, as I was working on this Grossram text, it struck me. I think if if I were if I were interested in writing a book on nationalism, I think it would be very interesting to look at um, kind of the legal history and intellectual history of Eastern Europe precisely during this period of 39 to, uh, to 41. Um, Timothy Snyder, in, in his recent work, Bloodlands, has, I think, done a, quite a good job of exploring um, this period um, in one of the chapters in that book, uh, where, of course, Germany and Soviet Union were at peace. And there was, as we've just been talking about, this, this weird diversity of ideas on nationalism and who belonged where and uh, you know, who had rights to what land and so on. But um, I think something that, you know, this is kind of a world that this gross realm text allows you a window into, but I think one that uh, could potentially be productively studied further, especially uh, given that we, I don't think, I don't, my impression is that the level of scholarship on, say, Romania, Bulgaria, a lot of these other countries, um, we just don't have a lot of the scholars yet who um, have the languages to look at that stuff on a really detailed level. And I think that could be quite productive for uh, intellectual historians. Well, there you go. What are you doing in your free time? Learning, learning Bulgarian? <laughs> no, no, I, uh, not, well, I, I don't know. I, need, that's, I have to. I have no excuses for not knowing. You don't, you don't have to answer. You yeah. don't have to answer. <laughs> All right. So let's let's talk a little bit about the, the last essay that you translate um, is relating to the Nuremberg trials. Yes. Right, from 1945. Yes. So yes, the background of this one, um, and I think just you know just to provide some context overall, um, I ended up deciding after doing the 1937 text. Um, to focus on these two texts, I think to provide kind of an interesting trilogy um, into how Schmidt's views uh, morph over these crucial years. And just just to add one other sort of obvious, uh, well, not so obvious, but I think uh, important point to make here, um, is when you look at Schmidt's scholarship overall, we, we really had not had access to a lot of these texts from the war years before. And I think that given that so much of Schmidt's um, reputation or his notoriety perhaps um, stems from his association with Nazism. Um, I think this is an especially important period to look at. Um, I, you know, hopefully try to present it in a way uh, that people can reach their own judgments um, on it. But it's important to, I think, look at how Schmidt's views morph throughout this period. Um, but anyway, uh, to look at the 1945 text, um, what is this thing? Um, what happened was it's summer 45, right? Berlin is in ruins. Germany has obviously been defeated, um, and there are rumors and policy discussions brewing about what is to be done, um, not only with the Nazi political leadership, but also with the doctors at the camps, uh, with Einsatzgruppen, with German generals. Um, and of course, the result of that is this whole series of trials that we've come to know um, at Nuremberg, most famously with the one uh, featuring Goering and, um, and Albert Speer and others. But in the summer of 45, uh, nobody, especially in war-torn Germany, really knows what, this, what these processes are going to look like or, or how it's all going to work. 
Um, in particular, a lot of businessmen, including Friedrich Flick, who was a German industrial magnate um, who had employed, um, I think, about 80,000 slave laborers um, in his factories uh, throughout the years of the war. Um, and what happened was Flick one day was sitting in his home and came across an issue of an American uh, magazine for GIs in occupied Germany called Stars and Stripes um, that hinted at the possibility that uh, German businessmen, um, Flick included, uh, could be potentially tried as um, defendants um, in Nuremberg trials. Um, crucially, not just for things like war crimes, in other words, um, you know, treating prisoners poorly, um, or crimes against humanities, uh, sort of atrocities uh, as performed in the extermination camps, um, but also um, uh, including the crime of aggressive warfare. Um, it's important to add here for context that um, even though in summer 1945 a lot of the details of the Nuremberg stuff wasn't quite worked out yet, um, one thing that had become fairly clear, I think, at that point was that there would be roughly four categories – well, there would be some categories of charges that came out to be four, but breaking down into – um, crimes against, uh, crime against, crimes against peace. So war as such, um, secondly, aggressive war. So not just war as such, but attacking a country, like going into war without, uh, not just as a defensive action, but evading a country without any good reason. War crimes in the sense of blowing up hospitals or blowing up, um, uh, uh, you know, barracks where uh, sick soldiers were and crimes against humanity. Uh, what we would come to know as genocide later, although this is of course a very complex process of norms in international law. So anyway, Flick, this industrious guy, is reading these newspaper articles, and he says, you know, yikes, you know, what am I going to do um, if, they, if they decide to indict me? Um, and Schmidt, having been a very prestigious and very well-known legal scholar, um, Flick gets in touch with, with Schmidt over the summer and asks him to write a legal memo um, explaining, first off, why this concept of the crime of aggressive warfare is bunk, but also explaining why, even if you don't think it's bunk, um, that there's really no good reason to convict a industrialist as opposed to like Hitler or Himmler or Goering uh, for this. And that's kind of the genesis of this text. And what Schmidt produces out of it um, is, I think you would agree, a really interesting intellectual history of interwar Europe, looking at this problem of, you know, how did people think about war or aggressive warfare, but then also a defense, um, and, and in a much more intellectually honest way than, than the defense of the Grossraum text, um, about why this is not a legitimate concept or why, you know, you can't prosecute someone for this. Um, and so that's kind of an overview of what this text is about. And there's a, and there's a sense, too, in which it, it is consistent more so with the 1937, uh, the discriminating concept of war, where he's raised this issue that that neutrality, the notion of, of criminalizing war, complicates the, the notion of neutrality. And, and here, in some ways, although he's not making direct reference, he's saying, look, it also it also complicates, it makes makes impossible the position of, of a, of a citizen who otherwise is not, I, I guess he would want to argue, uh, otherwise is not committing any sort of atrocity, but is then complicit in something that is denoted a crime. Right. I mean, you can you know you can imagine. Uh, I mean, to sort of make a crude uh, contemporary version of, of this argument, uh, sort of more more concretely, you can imagine if um, you know, let's say in two thousand three, miraculously. Uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, beats back the American army and invades, uh, you know, North America and, uh, you know, the Iraqi flag is lifted over the capital or something, uh, you know, like that. Uh, you know, imagine a world in which uh, not just sort of American leadership, but also um, anybody who was involved in, say, Boeing or, or uh, parts of the military industrial complex or um, people who were servicing um, American barracks in the, in the Persian Gulf and so on. Um, it said, oh, you know, guess what? You, you're now charged with, um, you know, committing this war crime. Um, against Iraq and so, and so on and so forth. So this, uh, 
Schmidt is very critical of this notion that industrial leaders, business leaders um, should be party to this, um, this judgment. He's, he's very skeptical of this idea of making individuals, um, you know, really including state leadership as individuals, um, guilty parties or criminal parties. And um, of course the stakes were for, for Flick were enormous. He could have been killed um, if he had been found this way. But Schmidt, of course, is not just interested with the personal issues here with uh, Flick's survival, um, but with what this will, how this will affect um, uh, jurisprudence and international law going ahead into the 20th century, as, as it definitely did. Yeah, there's, um, let's see, there was something I was thinking about several different things. One, obviously, um, Iraq, but then um, the, the fact that one, one of the things that struck me about his defense is that he grants immediately the notion of crime against humanity, the, yes. the notion of atrocities in war, and that, and um, I can't remember if there's a reference specifically to the Holocaust, you know, to Auschwitz, but at a certain level, it points to this kind of. Um, amnesia, blindness that many historians have, have indicated in the post-war period where it's like, well, yes, now we recognize that bad things happened, but of course it was all Hitler and the SS or the, or the party. It was always somebody else. And the, the level to which the, the whole society is implicated, as people have pointed out m- much more recently, um, just is not part of his thinking. He's willing to kind of write off, yeah, sure, Hitler, Goering, take those guys, but... but um, you know, flick and these and these poor innocent industrialists, who of course <laughs> slave labor, right? I mean, right. The, yeah, yeah. I mean, these these men were. Uh, I mean, just just for added context, later um, flick was, uh, in, in a sense, this this memo became uh, obsolete before it was even published, um, because the for the businessmen at least, the charge of aggressive warfare was dropped. Uh, flick himself was later tried and sentenced to several years in prison, which he served, but this didn't stop him from later becoming really one of the wealthiest men in Europe. Um, and, you know, having a, I think, very ambiguous relationship uh, with the wealth that he obtained in large part through this slave labor. Um, but with Schmidt and this uh, admission or the recognition of the atrocities, um, yes, it, it's, 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 I think, very interesting. Where on the one hand, um, you're struck throughout the text where Schmidt is basically saying, like, whoa, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm not defending. He, he just repeatedly emphasizes he's not defending Auschwitz. He's not defending um, you know, war crimes in the sense of the blowing up hospitals example. But at the same time, I, I think characteristic for many people in the German right uh, or who were affiliated with the power elites um, in Germany during those years, um, the the distancing uh, from Hitler is at times, I, I think, a little easy. Uh, there's, a, I think, a very interesting addendum uh, to this text where the entire text originally, of course, is written in German, um, but Schmidt, he as a scholar and someone who's quite, quite well-educated, he could write in English. Um, and he wrote this note um, in English, uh, which appears, I think, to have been directed uh, towards Robert Jackson, the, uh, the lead prosecutor um, at the Nuremberg trials. Um, and there's this kind of, I think, remarkable section uh, that shows this distancing from Hitler at the same time, uh, where he, I don't think, is quite striking the right tone or the, the tone that we would like him to, where he says... Uh, um, it's just the abnormity of such a type like Hitler and of an organization like the SS that makes it clear that there are several different questions regarding the legal side of this matter. Above all, the general international problem of the war of aggression as an international crime has to be distinguished from other crimes of the Hitler regime. The statement that in September 1939, Hitler resorted to a war of aggression in the sense of the Geneva Protocol or the Kellogg Pact is evidently not identical with a much greater specific task of openly branding and condemning Nazism and the SS and their atrocities in Toto. He goes on to say, and I think this is kind of the weird point uh, where he says, it doesn't seem advisable to combine these two tasks of aggressive warfare redefinition 
and condemnation of the Nazi regime. He says this would shift the trial center of gravity and the viewpoints of these 1920s sort of peace processes. Attention would be drawn away, um, especially when preparing the trial. Um, And um, uh, basically makes the point that if he did this, all of the moral um, tenor, all of the uh, moral importance uh, of the trials would be lost and there'd be this great perversion of international law. And I find myself when I read this saying, well, you know, okay, maybe this is partly true, but I, I, you find Schmidt kind of almost comparing this, this uh, miscarriage of justice with the, the, you know, the mass murder of, uh, depending on how you want to count six or, you know, over 30 million people uh, total and kind of this awkward distancing of, of Schmidt's that I think helps contribute to why many people find him still a, uh, a very complex figure uh, as an intellectual. Yeah. As I said, you have to kind of hold your nose at times. Yes, yes, that's definitely so, true. Um, and and one thing that should be said too, it's an admirable translation. As a as a, a reader of German, I could I could kind of see through your translation to the to the German that existed underneath, and I I I, I, I sort of cower to, to think about the notion of the idea of translating that into into workable English. But you've certainly done that, and and done a service, I think, to people who are interested in both. Um, you know, war and international law and the history of those subjects, but I think it, it provokes a lot of interesting thoughts about uh, contemporary affairs too. Yeah, I, I would just add with the um, with the aggressive warfare thing, it's important to, to note that even though I think Schmidt mounts a very interesting attack um, on this institution, uh, that he failed in a sense. I mean, after the Nuremberg trials and increasingly in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, the idea of a crime of aggressive warfare uh, did become institutionalized um, in international law, but I think this is interesting, um, you know, hopefully for international lawyers, uh, but it, certainly at the very least for historians, um, to look at Schmidt's attack um, as an interesting moment for how many of these institutions that we take for granted, um, you know, were, were not sort of set in stone. And many of them emerged from this, um, you know, unprecedented and horrifying experience of the Holocaust and, and the, the German bid for, uh, for European empire. Yeah, so they're not self-evident. Everything is a product of history. He's, you don't. You, you shouldn't have to tell a historian that. Yeah, it's a point worth making. So, so tell me briefly what you're working on now. Sure. What can we expect next? So, um, I, don't know, I, I, I oftentimes joke with friends that I, I just you know have the constant feeling of dilettantism. We're, I'm actually conducting this interview uh, from the campus of the uh, University of Nebraska Omaha, um, not to be confused with the one in Lincoln, home of the Cornhuskers. Um, and I'm here working um, at a really uh, wonderful archive called the Arthur Paul Collection, which is a a really great collection of uh, materials on Afghanistan, um, mostly from Western perspective, but also some Russian material. And the reason why I'm here is I'm working on a dissertation that focuses, um, at least at the moment, we'll see how it morphs, on uh, Soviet development and nation-building efforts in Afghanistan, um, mostly in the 1980s. Um, So this is a project that is mostly using Russian sources, but also materials in Persian, some materials in German, uh, materials in English, of course, um, looking at how uh, the Soviet Union, of course, invaded Afghanistan in 79 and embarked on this totally destructive war in the country. But looking at this kind of backside to the war where they were also undergoing this big nation building thrust, trying to build up communist institutions in the country at the same time, trying to look at how it was possible for an entire Soviet generation um, of nation builders of what you can call aid workers to be involved in this process um, morally, how they felt about uh, the Soviet project and the communist project at the same time that their own country had become so stagnant and kind of evidently in need of reform, how they felt about exporting that development model. Um, and also looking at um, uh, trying to put the Afghan experience in greater historical context, um, looking at the Soviet intervention 
not just as an isolated episode, not just as, you know, some, some land grab towards the Persian Gulf, which it's often characterized as, uh, but which is inaccurate. Um, and trying to situate it in a, um, in a broader history of Soviet development efforts throughout the third world, um, and competing, uh, development models between the United States, Soviet Union, um, and, you know, how third world countries and Afghanistan is a good example, uh, for where American and Soviet, um, uh, concepts of development squared off one another. Um, so basically here making a resource run, grabbing a lot of copies of stuff, um, in Persian, uh, mostly, which are very difficult to find elsewhere. And uh, hopefully, you know, uh, working towards a successful completion of that project. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, and I warned you at the beginning that I would ask you about um, a suggestion for the, the next feature on, on this uh, podcast. Do you have any, anything that you're reading lately that's, that, would, that should interest people that they should know about? Let's see. I've, um, uh, insofar as I've been traveling on uh, a lot of the airplanes recently, I've been sort of knocked out after after getting up really early uh, for my flight from Germany. But um, one book that I read recently that um, you know it, it, it depends on how sort of far away from military history you want to stray. But maybe maybe in line of this project I was just discussing in Afghanistan, um, a book that I read recently that I, I really enjoyed a lot, and I, I think it speaks a really positive direction in international history and, and maybe a, a productive way we can combine military with developmental history. Um, it's a book by uh, David Eckblad, who's a uh, professor at uh, Tufts University, um, uh, just outside of Boston, uh, called the uh, the Great American Mission: uh, Modernization and the Construction of American World Order. Um, and this is really interesting, looking at how uh, development as a concept emerged um, in American discourse and in the post-war years, um, but also how it was connected to American interventions abroad, and uh, obviously Vietnam, but also the war in Korea. Um, and I think he does a really fantastic job of showing how there was this, you know, interesting interplay between American consultants, intellectuals in the university, military officials, um, and how these groups came together um, in very diverse areas across, really, Asia uh, to come up with concepts of development that are really important to how people think about development today. Um, so I think that's that's a really interesting example of a work that's kind of what I'm trying to do in this Afghan project of trying to find a way to, to wed sort of military history with intellectual history uh, with history of development. Um, and so I enjoyed it a lot, um, and I'd highly recommend it. Well, great. Thanks for that. I, I think it is um, one of the issues of contemporary military affairs that armies are getting used as as development tools for development, right? Nation building and that sort of thing. Yes. The whole debate about that should be um, should be of interest to people. So, so thanks for that. Well, again, thanks for your time and and for taking time out of a research trip. I know how how precious those hours can be, and and I'll let you uh, get back to the archive. Sure. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Timothy Noonan, the editor and translator of Writings on War, a collection of essays by Carl Schmidt, the German legal scholar. Thanks for listening to New Books in Military History. Until next time.